This week, if you've followed the news, even if you hadn't, the news followed you. It's been a week of carnage. Just flat out carnage. That would be my summary of the news. Um, Graphic things that we've been exposed to that undoubtedly happen all around the world. It's just we don't always get exposed to it. Uh, Ohio, we have the the shooting of animals, wild animals, 20-some animals, suicide. I I was struck with uh, the sheriff's department. Uh, When they were surveying the situation, you have animals rushing at you, and the question of why didn't we tranquilize them and um, and Jack Hanna, the animal guy, was saying, if we didn't, if we, we, if we tranquilized them, we would have lost human life. Um, it takes five, ten minutes for these to have an effect. If you shoot them right, by that time, human life is in danger. And so it's just, bam, choice, human life, animals. And so they stated, okay, yeah, we preserve human life. So you've got that. And you see the price of animals on, on pictures of just tigers and lions and all kinds of exotic animals dead. And then you have Gaddafi captured. At his hands have been hundreds, perhaps maybe thousands of, of deaths, murders, and to preserve his power. He's captured and he's killed in evidently very merciless, graphic way. And that's been put out there. And accompanying that is celebration on the streets. Party going on. Um, Anybody feel any whiplash in this? Here you you have one scene of just carnage and it's taking place to preserve life. And another life has been taken and and people celebrating. And and we just... um, And I'm not making a value statement on Gaddafi's life other than what God himself has said that I'll explain. But it was just a little, a little tough. A little tough to be exposed to this and try to process this. All the while, I'm thinking about Exodus 20, verse 13. You guys probably not, other than I wonder what the pastor's preaching on Sunday, if that thought ever crosses your mind. Um, it crosses my mind frequently. And so I'm, I'm living in Exodus 20, verse 13, and I'm seeing on the news, and I just want you to share kind of the, the uh, tension that I've been feeling all this week, and so I don't suffer alone. Um, Exodus 20, verse 13, as we are studying the Ten Commandments, uh, we've, we've gone and we saw last Sunday a transition, and we've got the first uh, few, which is you know, a lot of folks would describe as the, the vertical relationship between man and God. Uh, and then a lot of folks identify the last half as that which re- represents the horizontal about among mankind. Um, but we saw that it's, it's not so cut and dry. There's a good mix of it all. And, and especially the last one uh, that we looked at, uh, honoring your father and mother, how is that transition? That it is in doing so that you do honor God. Uh, and I would argue with you that with all the other ones, we are honoring God. And it is a question of our worship of God. 
And if we are murderous people, then we are idolatrous people. If we are coveting people, we are idolatrous people. If we are stealing type folks, if we are lying type people, we are idolatrous type of people. And we are at every turn offending and crossing the first command uh, that is primary. Have no other God before me. And, and so we're going to see that certainly with the one today. And so uh, we talked about why it was that honoring your father and mother is before murdering. Why, why the, the order of this and that there's that something significant about this uh, in, in the order itself. So uh, we come to verse 13. And, and as I'm looking at these animals, I'm seeing the suicide or hearing the reports of the suicide. I'm hearing the reports of Gaddafi and, of course, all that goes on, all the while I'm thinking, you shall not murder, you shall not murder, you shall not murder. And why? Why? Uh, so let's go to the Word of God. Uh, I find it beneficial to just read all the Ten Commandments as, as, far, as far as what we've covered up to this point. And so if you'll just turn, we'll, we'll go to verse, uh, let's just start verse 1 and go through verse 13. And, and honor of this being God's Word, let's, let's stand as we read this together. God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery, notice God did this act of grace and mercy before he gave the Ten Commandments. It wasn't a condition. This is grace. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is his Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You are your son, are your daughter, your male servant, are your female servant, are your livestock, are the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You may be seated. And all of these commands, it's not just the prohibition, but we're looking at the positive. What is God reinforcing in this, uh, these commands? We've talked about the, the name of God, how that is the saving name of God, while we don't take that in vain because of the beauty and majesty of who God is. We talked about the Sabbath day and how God is God over our time, and he is uh, the one who makes life productive. And so we honor God, and we worship him by putting him over productivity in our life and regard him as over that. We talked about uh, the... Uh, parents, and we talked about how parents are are kind of co-creators, if you will, with God. That that God is creating souls that will live forever, and parents come and and work through that. And we just talk about the mystery of how that can be. That through parents cooperating together and God working through them, that you have in existence a a child that becomes an adult that will become or is an eternal soul that forever and always there will be a person. That has come into existence through the child, through the parents and and just the wonder of that and how that is uh, speaks to the power of God and and now we've kind of got the the opposite of that if if we have parents working with God to create human life or to be involved in that creating process then now you have murderers those who are trying to make it end <laughs> who are attacking the eternal purposes that God has for that individual 
Uh, and so they are working in against this, and it's kind of the exact opposite of, of creating life with parents being a murderer. And so first I want to take verse 13 and explain the sixth commandment. Let's, let's try to bring some definition to this, uh, talk about some exceptions that the Bible brings out itself. This is the shortest command, and in fact in Hebrew it's only two words. Uh, no murder are the Hebrew word for, for that worder. Uh, word for murder. In fact, the King James has thou shalt not kill. I think that may be a little bit too ambiguous for what the word himself is saying. Uh, and so I, I appreciate the, the translation I read to you today, and you shall not murder. That, that word uh, is unique in the Bible. You see it just about 38, 40 times in the Old Testament. But it seems to accompany or to identify uh, a violence. Um, it seems to accompany a, a selfish motive. Uh, when we talk about murder, we're not just talking about unintentional death. There is a word that describes unintentional death. And in fact, there is provisions made for unintentional death, an ag- accident, manslaughter, if you were, coming from the word manslayer of, of what we know in the Bible, uh, which is unintentional accidents that any one of us are capable in our lifetime of uh, killing someone uh, out of accident, unintentionality. And so you've got cities of refuge brought in to protect against refuge or against revenge uh, in, given in the uh, Jewish system. But this, this word seems to imply uh, the selfish motive that's involved in a murder. It seems to imply a violence. It seems to imply an intentionality uh, that is done. That, that it's, it's, it, you know what you're doing. You're doing it. You're killing. You're bringing harm to this person. Uh, it, it has a word that encompasses unintentionality, but it seems to be in most of the Old Testament referring to an intentionality that takes place. Uh, and so this is done out of green, bringing advantage to myself. Let me rid the world of this person because they are in my way or they're creating harm in my agenda. And so I, I cause them to cease to exist. Now, um, there are some exceptions we find in the Bible where death seems to be provided for um, three main examples that I just want to give to you and really, unfortunately, don't have time to explain in depth. It's going to beg it. And I'm just going to say, I'm sorry. I'm doing the sixth commandment, uh, not this. But the three cases include uh, just war. Um, an example of this would be Genesis 14, where Abraham um, hears about Lot being captured by the five kings and taking over Sodom. Uh, and so he gathers his 318 men of his camp, and they go and fight against the five kings and rescue uh, of Lot and their family. There is such a thing as just war, and there's principles in Scripture that seem to bring out some of this. Um, and this is, not, this is not an argument to say that all the wars in America have done is just war, but I'm just going to say there's such a thing as just war that takes place uh, when you're protecting the lives of the innocent. There is also, there seems to be exceptions where government is being given authority and killing. Um, when it's done out of a sense of punishment, uh, you see that in the Old Testament authority is given. Uh, Genesis 9-6 is one, or nine, specifically 9-6 is one that we'll look at. But you see this in the New Testament, Romans 13, that is acknowledged in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, I'm not saying that the way we do capital punishment is the way that the Bible teaches. And, and I know that we have differing views on capital punishment. All I just want to present to you is that the Scripture brings out in the Old and New Testament that there is authority over life that is granted to the government. How it's meted, how it's carried out, 
is another question in its entirety. But then also you see the third exception in the defense of home and others. The defense of home and others. Exodus 22 verse 2 speaks to this, that there uh, was, if, if there is a, a death that takes place in defending of the home, that that person was not found guilty of blood in their life. And so I would just reference Exodus 22, verse 2. And I'm just going to say, there's three exceptions that are given in the Bible that speaks to this, uh, and that would probably merit further study uh, on your part to look into this, or on my part to explain to you. Either way, uh, we may go in that. Uh, But I would just bring to your attention Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 through 12. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 through 12 uh, has some interesting uh, instructions here. This is right after the flood um, where most of the world is destroyed. Um, We talked about this when we studied Genesis. This is not, um, when you read it, the feel-good child story that we want it to be. Uh, it, It is devastating. Um, and basically we saw in that passage that God has right to call it judgment at any time he wants, and that the story of Noah and the ark is, is one such a uh, very clear, powerful story of his power over the world. But in Genesis 9, 1 through 12, he's given some instructions to Noah of how society is to carry on. Now remember, uh, just in your Bible chronology, Moses... Ten Commandments, right? Noah, who's first? All right? Noah is before Moses, okay? Keep that in your mind, all right? Why? Well, this is just something that God gives out before the law is given. I think that's something significant to understand. In Genesis 9, verse 1 through 12, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you as I gave you the green plants. I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. That's an interesting uh, verse there. And from his fellow men I will reckon, I will require a reckoning for the life of men. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. And God said to Noah and his two sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Now, from that passage, God is stating some pretty powerful things. First, I want to explain the sixth, uh, not to just explain the sixth commandment, but let's give reason to it. Why does God say, thou shalt not murder? All right. What's what's important here? First of all, looking at Genesis 9-6 in cooperation here, we learn that human life is sacred because it's priceless. It's priceless. And justice, when something is taken from someone else, a system of justice is to say, let's acquire it at the offender's hand. What, what is payment? What is just compensation for what has been taken from someone else, the victim? 
Uh, and that's why you've got the passage in the Old Testament, eye for an eye, a hand for a hand. Uh, the idea was let's not go overboard, let's make it just compensation. But when it comes to the taking of life, what would be just compensation? What price would we pay for someone slaying your son? For someone murdering your father, your mother? What would be just payment for that victim? Should we put it at 100000 Maybe 300000 A million. What would be just payment? Well, one thing that the civil courts don't always understand is there are some things that are just priceless. You cannot, you cannot put upon the life a dollar amount. And so when God is saying in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, that a life for a life, in other words, he's saying, I can't give you a monetary amount. It is priceless in its nature. And so if a life is to taken, what God is saying that capital punishment comes in, and this is not a sermon about capital punishment. I just want you to understand that in God, in presenting it in the Old Testament, was presenting in such a way to reinforce the idea that human life is priceless. And that was the role of capital punishment in the Old Testament. It's priceless. If it's not capital punishment, then what is the justice system? What money do we put on there? And God is saying you can't. The second reason why it says thou shalt not kill, and as we look at Genesis 9-6, is simply that human life is sacred because it's not yours. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. God is saying, I'm creating this life. I can call it in with a flood if I want to, or I can preserve it if I want to. It is mine to decide. It is not yours to decide. It is not even the life of your own to decide. I want to end it all right here. Okay? You know, I I think about this. I I learned a a tough lesson one time with barring uh, stuff. When I was in high school, I borrowed a, a wetsuit from a friend of mine. Uh, we were going to go and uh, go in a, a colder time of year, go out in the ocean and surfing. And, and um, I thought, well, I'm just going to leave it out to dry. I did leave it out to dry, and it was gone when I got back. I thought, oh, oh no, this is bad. I've, I've allowed this wetsuit to be uh, stolen from my hands. And here's what I learned. I had to pay for a wetsuit, and I didn't have anything in return. This is why I don't want to borrow stuff anymore because something bad could happen and then it's just like I'm paying for it and I don't even get it. This is I don't want to go down that road, but also when something's in my hands, it's, it's upon me to understand I'm held in account. There needs to be a willingness to, to pay for whatever harm that comes to that. And so what he's saying is that human life doesn't belong to you. There should be a care and that you're held accountable. Notice the Bible says there is a reckoning that takes place because he, God is holding you accountable for something that doesn't belong to you. Even your own life. Let me kind of jump ahead and just say here, suicide fits here. Now, I've shared with us before as we've dealt with this as a body, suicide is not the sin that cannot be forgiven. It is not the unpardonable sin. It is a sin that the grace of God covers. Somewhere along the way, some errant theology came out and people were thinking, okay, 
committed murder or have committed suicide. I had an opportunity to confess my sins. Therefore, I go to God in judgment without having my sins forgiven. And I just present to you that when God died for you on the cross, dying for your sins, all your sins were in the future. At the moment he died for your sins, all the sins that you've yet to have committed have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. What is the role of confession then? If the blood of Jesus takes care of that, the role of confession is to make sure my relationship is in good standing or good fellowship with God the Father. But my position before God the Father is intact as being loved by Him and that the blood of Jesus is stronger than my own sin and covering that. And so if I was to die out of having a wrathful moment with my wife um, and my wife kills me and I was just bad in anger toward her and she kills me at that moment, I have sinned. I have sinned by being uh, angry toward my wife. But before God, the blood of Jesus still is applying to that moment uh, and I go with confidence before the Lord. Now, what's the role of confession again? If I am to continue, I wake up, I live to see the next day after being angry with my wife, and God convicts me of my sin, I realize I am not in good fellowship with God the Father, and I love God the Father, and my heart is grieved, and so I confess my sin to have my fellowship restored to God because I broke His rule, His rule of of not loving my wife, And so, next, I go to my wife and say, I'm sorry for my sins, and I confess them before you. Will you forgive me? Why? Am I still her husband? Yes, positionally, we're still husband, but, you know, we're not talking at breakfast. And I want to talk with breakfast, and so I want to restore that communication between one another. So, suicide is something like that, that it is something that is a sin before God, because we have taken our own life, taken the life of God's life for me, and I have stepped outside of His will, and I have murdered myself, but there is forgiveness, even in that moment. It is sin, it can be forgiven, and as a body, murder has consequences, but if we do believe the gospel, We have to say to that brother or that sister and say, you are my brother and sister, though you've murdered, you've confessed your sin. God can forgive you even of that. That's one thing to say in our head, but it's another thing in our heart, isn't it? All right. And our heart needs to connect with our head, which needs to connect with God. Um, Just just as a thought in all this. So human life is sacred because it's not yours. But human life is sacred, as we look at Genesis 9-6, because it is made in the image of God. This is what the video was presenting to you, that in, in one human soul, or one human person, is within, the, uh, within that person is the glory of God that is uh, within that person that is even greater than even the mountains. And why did that person say that? Because Jesus did not die for the mountains. He didn't die for the pasture lands, the beauty of this nature. He sent his son to die for a human soul. Why? Because within that person is the material, the stuff, the capability to reflect the person of God like nothing in nature can do. Now, like I said, I I saw some mountains yesterday. It was gorgeous. It was beautiful. I just enjoyed looking at every scene I could where the sun was coming, the yellow and the reds and the, and the, and the mountains and the yellow and the reds and the orange of the sunsets. And it's just, 
I love looking at these signs. But when God sees a human soul, he sees within that person himself. Himself. And what you've got in nature is just fingerprints of, of God's working, of his handiwork. But what you've got in a person is the capacity to even reflect him. We are to be as mirrors. As mirrors. And we are to reflect God. And the only that way that perfectly happens is when God is our God. When we say, I have no other God before me, my, my, my mirror is facing toward you. If you have a mirror and you face it toward the sunlight, then the mirror is bright, it's reflecting the sunlight. But when you take that mirror and, and face it toward a, a dark closet, then when you just see darkness in that mirror. What you've got in the Ten Commandments is, is God saying, look, you have the capacity to shine the mirror at me and reveal brightness, reveal the glory of God. But if you worship stuff, if you worship people, if you worship uh, your prosperity, then you are shining your mirror at dark stuff. And there is no light there. I, I think about this in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. I, I, the Bible, Jesus is talking. He's talking about not being worried about stuff and about treasure. Kind of like the video was talking about. He says, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Now listen, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? In other words, if that which is you, which you worship is darkness, then you're going to reflect nothing but death in your life. If you live for money, if you live for materials, if you live for family, there is nothing of life in there. There is no giving of life in there. It is darkness. And so your eye is bad and so your whole body is bad. That's why he says, no one can serve two masters for either will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So, we're made in the image of God. We're made with the capacity to know him. We're made with the capacity to be like him in character. Has nothing to do with our physical attributes as far as mental capacity, physical capacity. If we define the image of God of physical capacity or mental capacity, what do we do with folks who have Alzheimer's? What do you do with folks who have mental instabilities? What do you do with folks who have physical handicaps? You cannot define it by what you're able to do physically, but within us, God has made us with the capacity to know him and to reflect him in character, reflect him uh, by our lifestyle. Okay? So... What does that mean? That means there's going to be desires within us. If we're made in the image of God, there's desires within us that are only fulfilled by God. Have you ever wondered why it is that we crave beauty? I mean, I enjoyed the beauty of the mountains. And you ask me, will you go again? Yeah, I'd go again. But you already saw them. Why do you, you've seen something beautiful. Why do you want more? I don't know why I want more. I just... I do. I can't have enough beauty in my life. It is a desire of my heart. Have you ever said, I've got enough friends? Yeah, that's good. I've, I've got enough friends. Why is it that we always desire another friend? We always desire more companionship. Maybe other friends that we've got are more friends. Why is that that you, you just, you know, you, you don't go up to people and say, you know what? I'm sure you look nice and great, and I'm sure you're a great person, but you know, I've got, I've already got ten friends. See you later. 
Have fun with your life. We, we don't do that, do we? I hope not. There's within us a desire to be with another. A hunger for love. A hunger for, for beauty, for creativity. Why is it we, we don't long for death normally? Why is it that within us there's a fear of death? Animals feel, fear pain. We fear death and pain. Why, why does that just hit us wrong? It's because we're made in the image of God. C.S. Lewis has a, a great quote where he, he stated, if I, if I wake up and I've got a, a hunger pain for food, that doesn't necessarily prove that there's food in the pantry, does it? <laughs> Have you been in the pantry? It's like, there's nothing to eat. <laughs> so what does the hunger pain prove? There, that there's something that exists that can satisfy you. But what happens when you walk and search the world over and there's nothing in this earth that satisfies you? Perhaps it points to the fact that you're made for another world. You're made for a food pantry closet that's not found here, that is found with the Lord. This is part of the image of God. Now, let me just bring some application to this. Talking about the reasoning of the sixth commandment and the explanation. What's the application of the sixth command? If we believe that every person is the image of God, that they are priceless before God, that they belong to God and not your own, not yourself, what does that mean? First, Jesus brought this application. When he looked at the sixth commandment and the Sermon on the Mount, he says, let me explain this to you. Let me break it down because a lot of us feel pretty good about our life right now. And you're thinking, all right, you know, he talked about the Ten Commandments. I feel, I'm going to show up this day because I haven't killed anybody yet. Um, so I'm, I'm feeling good. And then Jesus comes in and explains it for us and just makes us realize, oh my, this is much more than just murdering. We do not regard people with hate. We regard them with love. If the sixth commandment is true, if this is, we don't kill because these people are made in the image of God. We regard people with love, not hate. How does that happen? Well, Matthew 5, verse 21 through 22. Let me just stop here for a second because this is going to make it more effective. Um, In your mind, right now, I want everybody to have a picture of somebody in your mind. Um, that you are tempted to hate, or maybe just be annoyed with, as Joshua shared. We were like, I don't really hate them, but I am definitely annoyed by this person. Um, maybe you know them. Maybe you don't really know them. Maybe you see them on TV. Maybe this is a celebrity. Maybe it's a politician. What's that person you think, man, I just wish they did not exist. Life would be so much better. Okay? Maybe you live with them. Um, you might be looking at them. I don't know. Um, you know, they might be looking at you. Um, just have that that person in your mind, because this is not theory here. Have that person in your mind, or maybe the group of people in your mind, and then have that in listening to this. Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22, you have heard that it was said of, of those of old, you shall not murder, 
And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to the everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. In other words, there is judgment for those who have anger in their heart toward another person. Why? Because within that person is the image of God. They are priceless before God. They belong to God. So we cannot regard them with hate. Let me ask you, do we secretly rejoice when a person reveals evil? When some evil has been revealed about them? Is there a little bit, uh-huh, I knew it. Um, do we wish ill toward a person? Maybe we get a little disappointed when a person escapes their reputation being scandalized in some form. There's a little bit of disappointment. If we could, without any fear of consequence, and, be, and even before God, that God wouldn't hold us accountable, would we eliminate somebody? If, if even before God, we were guiltless. We just, they're out. They're erased. They're not here. I think about that, and, and I think about 1 Corinthians 13, 6, and 7. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. That's kind of anti-wishing ill toward a person. It's kind of anti-secretly rejoicing when a person reveals evil about them. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We don't, we don't look for the worst in people. You find out someone belongs to this category and you start looking for the worst in them. But Philippians 4.8, instead you think about those things that are lovely, just, good. Why do we do this? You understand that's a murder spirit in our heart. Murder spirit, that, that regarding them in this way. G.K. Chesterton uh, had an interesting statement. As a politician, the secular man will cry out that the war is a waste of life. Yet as a philosopher, he admits that all life is a waste of time. <laughs> so it's okay. Why don't we just kill everybody? It's, everybody's a waste of time. A scientist goes to a political meeting where he complains that we're treating native people like beasts. But then in a scientific meeting, he proves that we are a beast. So, you know, yeah, choice of wild animals, humans, just doesn't matter, does it? We're not any different. And then, therefore, the modern skeptic has become useless for purposes of revolution. By rebelling against everything, including God, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. Think about this. Evolution, those who, who prescribed a revolution with, with the idea that um, only uh, the strongest and the fittest survive. If, if that's true, if we believe that, then let's be consistent and forget about equal rights. <laughs> I'm sorry you're so weak, but, you know, maybe in a few thousand years you'll evolve and you'll get there. Until then, bam, you're out. Oh, you're poor? Okay. I guess that's nature's way of weeding out the weak. Nobody wants to go there and say, yeah, all right, there's justification for allowing these things to happen. But at the same time, we don't want the foundation for equal rights. That's a problem with that. There's an inconsistency with that. Even... Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in, in appealing to, uh, to society and realizing that America had unjust laws at the time, appealed not to the government, but appealed to a higher law. 
that he found flowing out of the Bible that men were made in the image of God and they were therefore deemed certain rights by virtue of the fact that they're made in the image of God. Let me just go on. What's another application here? We, we do not regard people with hate. We regard them with love. But also, we do not regard people as less than the image of God. We regard them as reflections of God's glory. And so this is a little bit of application of, of, of what we said earlier. It's to, to say, each person individually belongs to God and reflects Him. Now, Matthew 5, verse 22 through 26 says, Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering a gift at the altar and there remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. So here's how that works. We've got to watch out when we start regarding people in mass. You know, them Mexicans, um, them illegal immigrants, those, those liberals, those homosexuals, those evangelical Christians. When we start referring to people in mass, it's funny how we start losing the image of God. Them Arabs. What was Joseph Stalin's thinking allowing him to killing thousands, even millions in Russia? One statement he made is the death of one is a tragedy, the death of a million is a, a statistic. It's amazing what you can get by when you see them in mass. But when you realize that those in the Middle East, those in Mexico, those drug lords, those ones that who are guilty of heinous things, that even still in them is God making them and His desire and His hope for them was that they would fully reflect the image of God and they are broken and there's just a seed there. A seed there. When capital punishment takes place, it still ought to be done with a grieving heart. Not a joyous heart. When there is a war, even in a just war, there ought to be still not a celebration of death. But as I read in the Word of God, there still ought to be a celebration of life. So, what else here? Anything that might harm or weaken life needs to be avoided at all costs. If it might harm or weaken life, because the stake there, that this is the image of God, if it might harm that, it needs to be avoided. What, what's, I would present to you abortion here. Whether you want to debate whether a fetus is a, is a, uh, a human or not, I would say that's not the point. If it might harm, cause death, human life, because of the preciousness of, of what this is being the image of God, we need to consider that. What else? We should take care of the poor. If it's within your power, take care of the poor. Those who have no power of their own. Why? Because within them is the image of the glory of God. God's name is written there. You remember the whole Toy Story thing where the, Andy had his name written in the toy? That every child, every person that's poor, 
helpless, oppressed, still there is the name of God. I think that's when, when I go to India and I see the effects of Hinduism. And I'm thinking, why in America would anybody want to bring Hinduism here when you see what it does to a nation? When there's injustice and oppression and they think, oh, well, you know what? They did something terrible in their past life. Maybe this is good for them to help them to get up to the next level of living in their next life. So let's walk on by. In fact, let me handicap a few children here and get some money off of them. They've got bad karma. It's okay. This idea of taking care of the poor flows out of the value of life, the value that there is within this person, the image of the glory of God. C.S. Lewis, in his Weight of Glory, just made a, a stunning statement that kind of stretches my perception of people. Let me just read this to you. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. Is that interesting? The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that one humility can carry it, that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to be one or other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumcision proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all plays, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization... These are mortal, and their life is to ours as a life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors are everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be that of a kind. And it is, in fact, the merriest kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption, and our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or diligence with parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Let's just stretch your perception. You're sitting next to someone that will exist eternally. And when they are brought in by the hand of God, transformed beautifully, Without sin to the image of God, it's such that we would barely recognize. But they'd say, Jared! And they could recognize. Eternally, forever. Think about this in light of Matthew 25, verse 41 through 46. Jesus will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you curse, into the ever-eternal fire, prepared for the devil and the angels, for I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they also answered, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry, or thirsty, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and we did not minister you? Then you answered them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Wow. You see, on every human life is the name of God. And God is aware. 
Why do we invest toward those who are poor and oppressed? Because we're investing toward God, the image of God. And there's value in them. Now let me just share one last application. If this is true, if the image of God is in, in every human person, and therefore we do not murder, we share the news for spiritual life. We share the news for spiritual life. Exodus 33 turns the tail a little bit here. Twist it a little bit. Exodus 33, verse 7 and 9. So you, son of man, I've made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, and you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. He says there's such a thing as spiritual murder, and it happens when a person who has an eternal soul within them knows that they're wicked, or you know that they're wicked, you know that they will be in judgment before God, and you know that which could change their life, and you go on, and you do not regard who they are, and say, I will keep the news to myself, and they die in their sin, though you had opportunity to tell them different. Ezekiel 33 says that is spiritual murder. And I will hold the blood on your hand. Wow. Jesus came to fulfill the word of God. Jesus did not murder. He did not murder. But he was murdered. And he had the capability. To put out vengeance. And instead of murdering. And murderous thoughts and anger. He said. God forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. Hebrews 2 verse 8. Now putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. At present. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's why we see murder. That's why we see carnage. It's still not in subjection to him yet. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The anger and hatred in my heart was put to Jesus Christ, and he was murdered for my angerous, hateful thoughts. He was murdered and tasted death for everyone. The death I should have deserved because of my murderous heart, my hatred, he took and satisfied for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect for through suffering. <laughs> Jesus is restoring many sons to glory. He says through Jesus you can reflect more perfectly God because Jesus tasted death. Do you understand that in North Carolina You don't even have to move. There are 5.5 million people who do not know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But that's just a statistic, isn't it? It's amazing what we can allow happen in a statistic. But what about your neighbors, your family, your coworkers, the people you pass every day? Do you see within them the image of the glory of God right there? should be that maybe because we believe that maybe we should start praying for them maybe if God would give us opportunity and pray for opportunity we should talk, 
to them about what Jesus Christ has done. And I would say at the very least, maybe we should stop hating. Stop hating and start seeing them for who God made them and wants to make them to be. They're not just homosexual activists. They're not just liberals. They're not just Mexicans or foreigners. The people. It's not just your child. It's not just your parent. It's not just your spouse. They're humans through whom God wants to reveal his glory. Will you get along with God? Get on his perspective. And let God love you and love them through you. Let's pray.